there's a sequence to learning. We're starting with what are the kind of ready conditions to get the brain ready to learn, right? So mindset, optimism, that ballpark, we start there. Then the next question is, how do I evaluate the stuff I'm learning very, very quickly? Mm -hmm. If we are kind of aiming for accelerated learning, accelerated skills acquisition, things you need in peak performance to stay in that challenge skills sweet spot, mm -hmm. maximize flow over time, maximize performance over time, we gotta onboard this stuff fast. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there folks, welcome to today's masterclass with Stephen Kotler. We're gonna be covering learning, and specifically we're gonna be covering a couple of aspects of learning that are really important and often not really talked about that much. First is mindset, which is talked about a lot, but not necessarily specifically in the context of learning. And we're also gonna be talking about truth filters, which are really important, and you'll hear exactly what those are in a little bit. But Stephen, great to have you here. Thank you for taking the time. So first question for you is... Hold on. You're gonna introduce yourself? Re-endorse, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'll take that. Glad to be here too. Um, so how do you think about mindset in the context of learning? Yeah, I always say that, you know, learning is so important in the context of peak performance and flow. You know, it's one quarter of the art of impossible is devoted to it. And the reason is to maximize flow, yep. We have to stay in the challenge skills sweet spot, right? The most important or one of the most important flow triggers is known in this challenge skills balance, meaning we pay the most attention to the task at hand when that challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. Mm. You want to stretch, but not snap. What does that mean? That means we're going to be using our skills to the utmost on a sort of daily basis. Mm -hmm. That's how we stay in that sweet spot. If you can't onboard new skills to keep pace, mm -hmm. you basically lock yourself out of flow, mm -hmm. right? You use flow, it accelerates you, but if you can't onboard the new skills to keep pace with the speed of your momentum, you're gonna start to stall or yeah, plateau, which are, by the way, demotivating under normal circumstances. But if you've had a whole bunch of flow mm -hmm. and suddenly you start to stall and plateau, it's really frustrating because right. all the happy drugs have been turned <laughs> off and, and now it's, it's just all about grit, Not right? Yeah. yeah. So. You really want to know how to learn. And the place you got to start that quest is with mindset. And this is Carol Dweck's work at Stanford. It's come under a little bit of scrutiny lately. There's been some kind of failure to replicate problems. But this particular finding that we're talking about, there have been no problems with as far as I know. And it's holding up really, really well. And I think it's one of the most important things she discovered, which is that if you have a fixed mindset, meaning you think talent is innate and mm -hmm. that you can't learn, mm -hmm. right? No amount of hard work will get you farther versus a growth mindset, which talent is just a starting point and I can grow and learn, struggle and get better. So if you look at brain scans of people 
who are faced with a problem to solve mm -hmm. and they have a fixed mindset, what you see is almost no activity in the brain. Mm. The reason is the brain goes, oh, you can't do that. You don't do that. So it doesn't even waste any energy mm. to try. Right? So literally you cannot learn if you believe you cannot learn. Mm -hmm. Like it, it right. seems to be flat Simple out, like that, it really. turns off the neurobiological machinery that allows you to learn. So that's, I think, a really important place to start. Mm -hmm. So you need a growth mindset to learn. You need a growth mindset to learn. It's not, I mean, <laughs> you know, growth mindsets are trainable and we don't have one, this is a misconception about mindset. Like there's not one, you don't have a fixed or a growth mindset about everything yeah, in your life. They're peace, right? Mm -hmm. I was not a good athlete when I was growing up, especially when I was younger, very uncoordinated, wasn't very strong, very skinny, very sick kid, mm -hmm. everything going against me. And I, for a really long time, thought I was just a bad athlete. I was mm -hmm. never going to be a good athlete. Like everybody else in the family got the genes. Right. I did not get the genes. Skip oh, you. well. And, you know, I sort of stepped into it sideways because I started skiing. But this was in the 70s. Skiing wasn't a sport. Mm. It was sort of a pastime or, you know, it became right. an action sport. And it became this other thing. It was a lifestyle maybe. But it wasn't really the same as, like, mm. the sports that I was bad at. Same thing with skateboarding, right? We didn't call them action sports until by the 90s. Mm -hmm. They were just, like, these weird things we were doing in right. the 70s, right? Random hobbies. And random <laughs> hobbies um, that seemed to swallow people whole. Right. And, you know, so I started to get better at sports that were not sports, which is how I sort of evaded right. my growth mindset. <laughs> and then suddenly, one of, like, they became sports, and I was like, holy crap, I'm good at sports. Yeah, they got you know good at I mean? sports after you got after good at them. After I got good at them. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, oh, wow, okay, I got de facto uh, in. But it, like, and it switched my mindset, and suddenly, actually, everything sort of exploded, and I really could grow as a skier and as an athlete and all yeah. that stuff after it switched which was funny and ironic, but it's all, you know, I never had a fixed mindset about, say, writing or reading or learning because I've just been doing it for mm. since I was four, you know what I mean, so long. I never had time to get a fixed mindset. I've just all my life it stayed in that growth mindset. So certain things, you're born with a growth mindset, mm -hmm. certain things, you're born with a fixed mindset, and certain things... You know, we did a video recently about training your weaknesses, and I talked about learning legalese. Mm -hmm. There were years when I would, my contracts would come in, my agents would send them to me, and I would look at them and go, I'm never going to know what this says. Like, never. Doesn't matter. I don't right. care, right? And no, turns out, like, mm. you know, a little bit of valuable grace, yeah, being yeah. patient myself, and, you know, suddenly you're there. And so, you you know, you can shift them. I, I You know, it's often helpful to sort of identify in advance, yeah, where exactly. are my fixed mindsets? Yeah. You know, where don't I think I can learn? How can I start undoing yeah. those notions, reframing it, pushing on that a little bit? So I think that's, you know, that gets us into the learning conversation. Yeah. That's got to be our first step. Yeah. Yeah, well, you mentioned about identifying mindset is really important. I think almost being able to develop like a little bit of a spidey sense as to where you are having or encountering fixed and growth mindsets with respect to different things is key because if you don't know that you've got a fixed mindset within a certain department or a certain thing, you can't really take action to try and I often solve. find, my, like, by the way, frustration, right? Mm. When you're when I'm suddenly frustrated and a little pissed for no that's the, reason, the tell. that's one of the tells because mm. it's often computer tech problems are a great example. Right. I am not great at fixing computer tech <laughs> problems, but I no longer have a fixed mindset about yeah. it thanks to 
Apple Care and their endless patience right. with me. Yes, I will spend nine hours on the phone with you, Mr. Kotler, to teach you how to restart your Mac. Right. 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 You know, eventually, eventually I got over that one. But when I encounter tech problems, and even today, even though I've got now a growth mindset about them, my instant reaction is a fixed mindset rather than, hey, wait a minute, I, I like even I stuff that I know how to fix mm. when it first comes up. So I, that's often a way for me to tell. And I think most people probably don't have my signal. You're going to have a signal though. Yeah. Yeah. Find the signal is, it, yeah, is a key point there. One signal I find is if I'm comparing to others in a certain specific way of, oh, that's a thing other people do. That's not me, that's another kind of tell, but the tells are definitely very individualized. So yeah, try and identify the tells. Is there anything else that you recommend for people before we get into the rest of the learning components just for identifying fixed No, I think, I, think I, I don't think it's really complicated. I think it's just not something we're used to doing. Mm -hmm. and so most people don't even think about the fact that they can right, identify. Right, identify them. I don't think it's particularly hard mm -hmm. and if you have fixed mindsets about something, as skills you have to acquire, you're obviously going to have to find a way to reframe it, mm. right? And change that mindset that may require usually a little bit of learning, just like a little bit more reading, mm. finding something that you're vaguely curious about right. inside that space is often a good way to do it. Building some momentum. A little bit, yeah. Right. Are there any other aspects of mindset besides the fixed to growth continuum? that are important or helpful when it comes to learning? I think that, I mean, I, that term gets used to cover a huge swatch, base, swatch of things. When you talk about mindset, are you talking about optimism? Mm -hmm. Is that a portion of mindset? Like Peter Diamandis, my writing partner on Bold and Abundance and right. Faster, would absolutely tell you optimism is part of mindset. And certainly, you know, a Matt Ridley-style rational optimism Magical thinking is very harmful to peak performance for a lot of reasons. It ends up being very demotivating. Mm. It's like using affirmations, right? When your brain knows they're not true. Same thing with magical thinking. Like there's a part of your brain that knows that it's sort mm. of magical thinking oftentimes, and it, that ends up being demotivating over time. But rational optimism, grounded optimism, really good for peak performance, mm -hmm. fantastic for peak performance, opens you up. You take start taking in novel, way more novel yeah. information. Yeah, proves divergent thinking and positive affect. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, so segueing from mindset to truth filters, which is our next topic, before I go into specific questions on the different forms of truth filters, anything you want to mention about truth yeah, filters Yeah, so, I mean, the, you got to understand that this is a, there's a sequence to learning and we're starting with what are the kind of ready conditions to get the brain mm -hmm. ready to learn, right? Mm -hmm. So mindset, optimism, that ballpark, we start there. Then the next question is how do I evaluate the stuff I'm learning very, very quickly? Mm -hmm. If we are kind of aiming for accelerated learning, accelerated skills acquisition, things you need in peak performance to stay in that challenge skills sweet spot, mm -hmm. maximize flow over time, maximize performance over time, we got to onboard this stuff fast. So you need to be able to evaluate anything you're learning very, very, very mm -hmm. quickly. And there are very famous systems, mm -hmm. philosophical systems in a sense, in place to do this. This is not mm -hmm. a new problem. This is a very old problem. The scientific method is mm -hmm. a truth filter, is a way of evaluating information. Investigative journalists have a different methodology and then 
ancient Greek philosophers had first principle thinking, and we'll mm -hmm. talk about sort of all three. Now, there are others, and you can endlessly kind of, kind of subdivide these categories and different ways to think about them, a lot of different rabbit holes to go down. I like to keep things pretty simple and straightforward. Let's start with investigative journalism. Okay. Just before we dive in, I just want to make sure folks are tracking. So what would you describe truth filters as in general? Truth filters are a way to assess information for is it accurate? Is it truthful? Right. Can I act on it? Mm -hmm. Right? Flow massively amplifies our speed, but you have to be able to kind of act on the information, the stuff you're learning very, very quickly to keep pace mm -hmm. with the acceleration that the state provides. So truth filters are a really good way. And also, I think very important because inflow, you get a load of dopamine, mm -hmm. a lot of happy juice. And, you know, dopamine is really great within a certain bandwidth, but you turn it up too much, you start moving into schizophrenia. Right. Right. Mania. And you start seeing patterns that are not there. Yeah. So you really want kind of deep, well-established truth filters. So when you encounter the dopamine that naturally comes with flow and we want, it's great but it's gonna lie to you, right? We have Flow Research Collective swag that says never trust the <laughs> dopamine for this exact reason. Right. The dopamine is the greatest thing about doing this work or one of the greatest things in terms of like, it feels really, really, really good, mm. but cocaine produces a lot of dopamine, right? It, right? That also feels really, really, yeah. really good. You know what I mean? Not necessarily you don't trust those things. So you want a way to evaluate information, especially when you're in peak states, a little more rigorous and, and for certainly when just learning so you can get into those states faster. That's mm -hmm. how I think of truth filters. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And they, they kind of help combat the cognitive dopamine distortions that can come through. I think so. Investigative journalism then as the first sort of swatch of truth filters or approach. Yeah. And I just, I always like to tell a really embarrassing <laughs> story about myself. The standard investigative journalism tact has always been, when I was coming up as a journalist, if you find a fact, discover a fact, and then you can get three experts mm -hmm. to confirm it, you can publish it. Now, fact checkers for magazines, and if you're writing for the New York Times mm -hmm. magazine, either, you know, if you're having a scientific fact or whatever, then you're gonna have to backtrack it to a research article. But if, you know, somebody says something happened, mm -hmm. right, you need three people to confirm it before you can publish it. So. I was doing a story for Discover Magazine on the neurobiology, what's happening in the brain during mystical experiences. And I was focusing a lot on out-of-body and near-death experiences. And one of the very first, this was in the sort of late 90s, and one of the very first things I discovered, and these were really outsider weird topics for mm -hmm. the outside of science at that point. They were very fringe. Now they're very mainstream. At that point, they were incredibly fringe. In fact, this article was the first major article in any science publication about the science underneath this stuff. So that had not happened, right? Getting it right because it was a big step forward was important. And one of the first things I discovered was, holy crap, there's a lot of research that had been done, mm. right? It was everywhere. And so I did what a curious journalist would do. I asked my source, right. hey, why isn't this common knowledge? Like if you look at the Gallup survey, for example, 10 to 20% of the American people have had a near-death or out-of-body experience. Mm. That's tens of millions yeah. of people, right? That's a huge amount of people. And if we actually understood what was causing these things, you know, when tens of millions of people want to know something, that's usually front-page news. Mm. Right? So I was like, why is this not front-page news? I don't get it. And he said, oh, it's because these two 
they were not even great scientists. They were sort of like quasi charlatan, new age, spiritual dudes, wrote these books and they both became bestsellers and real scientists got scared off. And that's what happened. And that's why this isn't front mm. page news because anybody who does this work does it really quietly because mm. the science community will hate you and you want to get grants, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked a second source and I asked a third source and they all gave me the same two names and told me the same stories. And we went to press that way and I got a very angry phone call from one of the scientists whose name I named. And it turns out I had slandered the guy. He had not written a best-selling book on altered states of consciousness. He had actually written a, he had published a collection of scientific articles about things, et cetera, et cetera. They all gave me the same wrong name. Huh. There was a different scientist and they actually gave me the name of a man who was then one of the most important and solid and respectable altered states of consciousness researchers in America. And mind you, I later went into this field. So like right. one of the giants in this field, he doesn't know it because he, he can't remember, right. but he hates me. He really hates me. <laughs> I sent him flowers. I sent my editor <laughs> flowers. I wrote him a long note. It was my, That's like right. there was a fact checker who missed it. My editor, everybody missed it. And everyone you asked? Everybody also? asked. Same thing. And it was because they were I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And the names aren't even similar. But mm. so what I discovered is, oh, wow, that's bad. I should ask a couple more people. If everybody else is going to ask three, I'm going to get five sources for every fact. Mm. And that, by the way, is the Flow Research Collective. We try to have five sources for every fact. And the reason I've settled on the number five is because I've noticed when you're going down an information chain, Three or four people will often give you the exact same response. But if you go to that fifth or sixth person, yeah. they invert everything you had been told before. And you often have to go ask three or four or five more people. Yeah, when I was first doing research, I noticed that oftentimes publications like Harvard Business Review or things like, or sometimes even places like The Atlantic would cite certain things. You'd try and find the source. And the source would be another publication like that that wasn't direct research. And then you try and find the source from that. And it, it, you just kind of be like in this same area of surface level information. And they're all just citing each other. And it's very difficult to actually penetrate down to the baseline source. Because often, you know, sometimes there isn't one. And it's just citations about citations. So They're quoting other people, right. not citing yeah. them, right? And it gets hard to differentiate. So it's, yeah, it's hard to differentiate. It's a hard line. You're absolutely correct. Anyway, so now these days... Is an investigative approach, I think, okay, if I've got a fact that I'm going to really trust and sort of like build upon, three to five sources have to kind of confirm it to me, mm. then I'm like, okay, now I'm willing to teach it to other people and say, you know, this is the science, this is why we think it's the science, that sort of stuff. So that's sort of the investigative journalist approach. This is not quick, mm -hmm. right? But when you approach sort of everything in this way, right? The big things that you're dealing with that are, that are sort of foundational in this way, over time, you get faster mm. at sort of detecting where should I be skeptical, where should I not, mm. right? You, you, the muscle develops. Hey there, Rian Doris here again. Sorry to interrupt for a quick moment. I wanted to remind you that if you want to Pre-order Stephen's new book, TheArtOfImpossible.com. We have over $1,500 worth of peak performance bonuses that you can access immediately. They will get dropped straight into your inbox. 
just for the price of the book, which is about 30 bucks. So it's a really, really super deal. And it's theartofimpossible.com to claim the bonuses. The bonuses include all sorts of cool things like secret chapters from Stephen's past books that he never ended up releasing. They include an impossible goal setting masterclass, how to set goals the right way. They include a course on mitigating distraction and maximizing attention to accelerate into flow and much more. So you're going to love the bonuses. Go to the artofimpossible.com or click the link in the show notes and you can check out and get them dropped straight into your inbox. Alrighty, back to the episode. So what would be, you know, a, an example or a case scenario where someone would, would deploy that method if they want to learn about a topic themselves and make sure what they're learning is accurate? Yeah, exactly. Or they're writing Exactly. They're if they're writing it, they're speaking or they're presenting the ideas in any way to a boss, to yeah, the company, right, right, right. right? You're going to a meeting yeah. and you, you know, press how do you release. know this is, how do you know the press release, yeah. all that Got stuff. It. And certainly, by the way, when you're learning in general, acquiring new skills, reading, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you still want three to five sources, right? Mm -hmm. You may be reading like the world's leading expert on the thing that you're reading about, but it's still only mm, one, one, person. one person, right? you know? Yeah, that makes total sense. So anytime someone is, conveying information basically and wants to make sure it's tight yeah triple check the sources or quintuple check the sources scientific method you're going to go on to scientific next? method is data gathering generate a hypothesis test your hypothesis be able to falsify your hypothesis right and you know modify and go forward mm -hmm. that way and you know i sort of at the flow research collective we talk about there's always a sequence and in the peak performance space, you see a lot of people screw this up. I would say the order of the process has always got to be insight, research, publication, communication. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is have your breakthrough insight, whatever it is, then go make sure it's a real insight. This mm -hmm. is where you're testing your hypothesis and one hypothesis you can falsify it, all that stuff. And then publish your insight someplace so other people can comment upon it mm -hmm. Then you get to stand on a stage and tell people it's true or teach it to other people. And that's a lot slower than most people mm. want to proceed, right? Like you see this in the thought leader space. So you see it where somebody wants to write a book mm -hmm. to like, you know, as a marketing tool. So they have their insight. Mm -hmm. They skip most of the research phase or they do maybe a little bit of surface level research to convince themselves that it's true. They don't publish or they put in a book right off the bat. Like a lot of my big science ideas, by the way, mm -hmm. that showed up in books, I didn't have the peer review process, mm -hmm. but what I had is magazines. They had fact checking. They would call the same people who would peer review a paper mm -hmm. about like they would fact, fact check it, right? Mm -hmm. Like they would fact check my facts with three to five sources. Mm -hmm. they, like that's how it goes with fact checkers kind of thing. And they're the most anal retentive people in the world, and they're very right. difficult to please, right. right? And they're like their job, their goal is to find ways you screwed up. Like that's yeah. how that's they prove they're doing their job by proving that you didn't do your job. So it's an adversarial relationship. Right. So like you, you you go in, you know, sort of knowing that. So I was using magazines as ways to kind of do peer review stuff. So long before I started writing about flow in West of Jesus, mm. I think I wrote 20 to 30 articles on flow 
and sort of mystical experiences and the neurobiology of mystical experiences, all the questions that were in that book for Psychology Today and Discover and mm. the New York Times, you know, and it was less about letting the public comment on it and more about the actual fact-checking process and the fact that, like, I knew they were going to call and I was going to get to call top people and say, is this true or not? Mm. And it, so it was a really made me really comfortable with it. Wasn't quite the scientific method, but it was closer in that neighborhood even early on. Mm. And I, I also think one of the things that really matters here is it's not really a peak performance thing, but in today's market, quality matters a lot. Like mm -hmm. we're, we're bombarded with so much stuff at this point. The AIs that filter the world for us Used to be you could sort of sneak past them with keywords and marketing mm. tricks and things like this. But for example, in content, AIs are now able to watch entire movies, digest what they've watched, and sort of rate it from a creative artistic mm. level, right? You've got AIs that can write books or write movie scripts or write, like we've seen all this stuff. So what it means is that our filters for the mm -hmm. world are getting more quality-based. Mm. So a lot of the like kind of info marketer turned thought leader experts that have sort of arisen on maybe less than solid foundations, they could do it because you could game the keywords. Right. You could game SEO mm. and you could, like there was a way to make a living that way mm. because of the way search is starting to be done. Mm. Those portals are closing in my opinion. So maybe this doesn't apply to everybody's job, but if you have a, any portion of what you do is public facing, right. quality is gonna matter more and more, I think, going forward this mm -hmm. century. So another reason to really get mm. a rigorous truth filter in place. Mm. What was the stack for the scientific method? It was hypothesis testing through- A couple different ways to approach it, but you know, usually most people, if they have a question, they'll start with a sort of a literature review, yeah. right? And that'll also usually be a colleague review too, right? Like right. read everything, talk to everyone. Yeah, yeah. You know, big data gathering on the front end, create your hypothesis. This is where I think the data points, mm -hmm. right? Make sure it's falsifiable because if mm -hmm. you can't prove it's wrong, you, how are you going to know it's right? It's right. Yeah. right? You brought this up earlier, this is Karl Popper's right. work. And then test it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, science likes to shrink things down as small as possible in the lab so they can get rid of the noise and the variables. That is one approach. One of the things I really like is Gary Klein. He's an intuition researcher and he is an advocate for kind of what he calls naturalistic psychology. So when he was studying the neuroscience of decision making, instead of reducing decision making to really simple lab tasks, mm you know, that are being performed by undergraduates, he went and observed firefighters in the field yeah. making hard decisions while combating, right? Mm. So there's different ways to do that. We do it slightly differently at the Flow Research Collective as a general rule. The literature review, we'll do our hypothesis, and before we actually take things in the lab and start really reducing them, we'll often introduce them to our community right. as hypotheses and say, hey, there's 100,000 of you guys, please go test this and feed us back your information. And then we'll take that, so it's an extra layer, but I find that it saves a hell of a lot of time yeah. in the lab because we're crowdsourcing it and you get sort of iron out a lot of anomalies mm. when 100,000 people are participating. So another reason why if you're watching this and you're part of the Flow Research 
collective community, you know, and we send out surveys and things like that, that's what we're doing, right? right? We're, we're going from hypothesis into, we're about to take this in the lab and start getting jiggy with it and simplifying and shrinking it. But before we do that, and this, one of the reasons is, is because I like the naturalistic method. I think Gary Klein has learned a ton of stuff about intuition that, for example, Daniel Kahneman, who worked in the lab very much, did not learn. And sort of the current, by the way, thinking and intuition blends both of those approaches. Like they blend, they've come together, mm. right? And I think, I think there's wisdom there that joins them a little bit. So how you sort of approach the scientific method, there are a couple different ways. And mm. it sort of depends on who is your mentor in science, where you learned it from. Well, it's also, it's, it's extremely important in business that using the scientific method, in terms of Steve Blank's work and Eric Ries' work on the lean startup, learning and business is, and in startups is very much so happens through. Well, yeah, it's an agile practice, method. lots exactly. of rapid experimentation. Jeff Bezos, yeah. it, when we were writing Bold, said to us that the success of Amazon absolutely depends on how many experiments yeah. I run per month, per week, per right. day, right? Like, so, and Skunk Works, which are the, one of the great innovation accelerators of all time, are also built on rapid experimentation, right? right? Rapid experimentation, a little test of truth. Is it real, yeah, is it real, exactly. is it real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. Um, Knowing what's an assumption, creating a hypothesis out of it, validating it or invalidating, and then deploying resources versus just, you know, going all in on things that are untested. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. And the, the last one that we have to jump to, the third approach, first principle thinking. Mm -hmm. It's a really old idea, but Elon Musk, I think, has probably brought it back into prominence yeah. more than anybody else. The idea here is to reduce things to sort of their basic decision-making parts. So it's easier to explain by example. When Elon Musk was interested in getting into the solar business, right? Mm -hmm. Tesla is an electric car that's a sort of a solar thing, and then Solar Cities is an actual solar company. Everybody said, no, 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 you can't do this. We can't, we don't have batteries. Mm -hmm. The batteries are never gonna be long enough to really back this up, and nobody can make affordable batteries. And Elon decided he would have to make affordable batteries, like that was gonna be the next step, and it wasn't a particularly great business market. And the way Elon approaches it, in a sense, in a business decision, this isn't really first principle thinking, but it's nice to talk about it, is he de-risks the decision. So he'll say, okay, facing this battery question, you know, a company built on where we are now has like a 30% chance of success and a 70% chance of failure, mm -hmm. and that's unacceptable. At what level would I be willing to launch the company? I think he says he's willing to launch a company if he can get it above a 70% chance of success, mm -hmm. right? So he's got to ask himself questions. Well, what de-risks 30 and gets it to mm -hmm. 70, right? And cost of battery was one of the big ones. And everybody said basically that like they were never going to get cost effective, efficient enough and cost effective. So what did he do? First principle thinking says, normal business thinking would be, let's go look at what our competitors are doing, how much right. do their batteries cost, how much are they spending? Okay, maybe we'll be a little more efficient than them and let's say we hire better engineers so we can chop 10%, blah, blah, blah. Must said, what are you talking about? I go, he went to the London metals market, he looked up the price of cadmium, of mm -hmm. nickel, of all the major components of a battery. He realized they were pennies on a dollar and everything else was technology and technology always improves over time mm. and it's speeding up exponentially. So he went into the battery business and now his gigafactories 
dominate. You know, he's mm -hmm. making the best, cheapest batteries. The Powerwall is essentially what is allowing us to go solar into the future, one of the, the big things. That's first principle thinking. Another example is when he wanted to build a rocket shift. Mm. Everybody else was, you know, saying, oh, it's this expensive, it's this expensive. Well, he looked up all the core components and he went, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right. So that's another kind of truth filter. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. And I'm not saying you should use this over that. I think you can use each one depending on the situation. Just a toolbox. And the point is, if you're going to accelerate learning to maximize flow and performance, you need a way to assess the information you're mm -hmm. encountering very, very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So you can trust it, so you can build things on it and not have to worry about an unstable foundation right. for where you're going, right? You don't want to build anything on an unstable foundation. And flow, you're moving really fast. Mm -hmm. An unstable foundation can really cost you, right? right? And so it's really important to be able to assess the information really, really quickly. So. Growth mindset gets your brain ready to learn. Truth filters tell you how to assess what you're learning very mm. quickly. And sort of the next learning module in the stack is the question of, well, what materials do you learn from? Right. And that's where we'll be turning our attention right. in the next right. installment. And I think, interestingly, when you, when you integrate all the truth filters, you end up back at a mindset piece, which is kind of developing just a skeptical questioning mindset or disposition in general, which is not necessarily something everyone possesses and takes a little bit of, of training. Well, it's tr so the tricky thing for peak performance, good point, and mm -hmm. you're right, but it's not just because if you've noticed, people are super, super skeptical yeah. all the time. One, they're, they're not, they don't seem to be as happy. Right. Right? And, um, <laughs> that is very and, true. And, you know, for yeah. example, some of the harder groups of people to work with, though, we, we've ended up being very successful at this, but it took a while both lawyers and accountants. Yeah. And one of the reasons is they have backwards facing jobs, right? They're always rear guard actions, trained mm -hmm. to be very, 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 very skeptical. And skepticism is great, but you need optimism for yeah, performance, right? right, right? right. Yeah. So you gotta, you need a- Optimistic skepticism. A rational optimism, optimistic skepticism, right? So you have to balance it. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that, that takes some time, right? I think everybody, when you start learning the skills of critical thinking, which mm -hmm. is essentially tooth filters would fall under the umbrella right. of critical thinking, you can have a period on the front end of like massive doubt and massive skepticism. And it's, you know, it's sort of worth tempering that, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of like, you know, it's new learners conversion zealotry in a sense. And right. It's helpful because it helps you kind of burn in these skills, but remember you want to tinge it with optimism. Right? Yeah, um, it's a good point. A little dose of optimism in the mix is, is key there. Why do you think skeptical people are often less happy? Is it because the skepticism brings in pessimism that they haven't you know, well, explicitly replaced with optimism? Or? I think it comes down to, at a really basic level, threat detection, right? We know under normal conditions, we're taking in nine negative bits of information from every positive, but if you become really, really skeptical, mm. or if you become a conspiracy theory junkie, or et cetera, et cetera, you will start taking in even more negative information, right? Just as you can tilt the scale towards the positive, you can right, you can tilt the, it towards the, the negative. The inverse of a gratitude practice. The inverse of a gratitude practice would be an actively skeptical practice right. in the sense. <laughs> active skepticism in this. And I mean, you have to just, I think, 
There's no perfect world of forms, in mm -hmm. my opinion, mm -hmm. and the enlightenment ideal of, you know, an ideal truth, right. right? An absolute truth. I'm a little postmodern. I don't, I'm distrustful of those ideas. I'm more of a Nietzschean in how, mm -hmm. I, how I approach that thinking. Same thing with like, I've spent enough time around scientists, around journal, around people who hunt for the truth for a living. I have hunted for the truth for a living, mm. you know, as a journalist, as a scientist, as a re like, you know, I've spent my life doing this and it can sour you. It can make you really bitter mm. on the world. And I've come to the conclusion that because I don't think there's an absolute truth, I don't expect it. I don't expect it out of anybody or anything, nor... I mean, I've really, really hard to give you as much of it as I possibly can, but I even, you know what I mean? Like any scientific fact I present you, even if it's the thing that I got, I believe this more than anything else. Well, the history of science tells us 50 years from now, we could discover right. something that overturns this completely, right. right? That's the history of science. About, more about proximity. So truth yeah, in a, in a, yeah, there's, I don't think there's an absolute, but you, you want to start to get closer and closer and closer and being able to do it more quickly and more quickly and more quickly because mm. it's the speed, right? I I think what happens with the skepticism is they get hung up on the truth. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I'm in it for the peak performance, so I want like yeah. I want the truth to be as useful as possible in a right. sense, but yeah. not be an impediment right. to performance. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah. More more of a pragmatic approach. Anything else you want to mention on, on learning mindset truth filters before we wrap it up? No, but you make me feel like there should be something else. <laughs> Is there something else you'd like to mention? No, me? I think we got it. I think we got it. Um, unless you've got anything burning top of mind. So, yeah, thank you for tuning in, folks. Before you all jump, I want to take a quick moment to mention Zero to Dangerous which is our flagship peak performance training here at the Flow Research Collective. If you're an entrepreneur or a leader or a knowledge worker, or you just want to spend more time in flow, then Zero to Dangerous may be a fit and you can consider applying below. You will work one-on-one -on -one with one of our PhD level peak performance coaches. You'll join a network of like-minded peak performers from across the globe. You'll do a whole curriculum of neuroscience-based peak performance tools. And we go into topics like this and many more. So if you wanna, wanna learn how to spend more of your workday in flow, it could be a really good fit for you. You can click the button below. You can apply 30 second application form and then you can book a free call with our team. They'll answer any questions that you may have about training with us and working with us. And we may end up seeing you inside Zero to Dangerous. But for now, all the best. Uh, one thing I forgot about Truth Filters. Okay. So if you if Zero to Dangerous is maybe not your thing, yep. that apply button, if you push it 57 <laughs> times while saying, I am in flow, I am in flow, I am in flow, Absolutely nothing's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> try it, try it anyway. <laughs> try it at home, conduct your yeah, own be experiment. Skeptical. Be skeptical, be skeptical, go in. <laughs>